Well, good morning, Antioch. How are you guys? So good to see you. My name is Pete, and uh, one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together today. I'm glad that you're with us. And we're going to continue on in the series we've been in for the last several weeks, a journey into the season of Advent, which is an ancient Christian tradition, a time set apart to prepare our hearts to anticipate and to wait eagerly for Christ's arrival in the world. And so this morning we'll be talking about uh, what it would look like to celebrate Christmas in a way that reflects God's love. And in a lot of ways, Advent or Christmas is the story of a loving God who shows us his love by coming to us, becoming one of us, living among us, and inviting us to find ourselves in him and be part of what he's doing in the world. And so my hope and prayer is that this morning we would experience and receive God's love as well as be transformed into the kind of people that would reflect that love to one another and to the whole world this week. Sound good? Okay, we'll go to Matthew chapter 1 then. And um, we're going to read the way that Matthew starts his story about Jesus. And uh, he gets to mangers and angels and wise men a little bit later, but that's not actually how he begins his account of the Jesus story. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that instead of narrative, we get a long genealogy, a big list of begats, as they say. And it's sort of a surprising way to start, start the story. And so I want to focus in on this passage this morning, but instead of me reading it, uh, well, I'm going to show you a video that a friend of mine made that is this same passage, um, but in a, in a way that's a little bit easier to get through. So go ahead and roll this. This is Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. Of the genealogy. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hazron, Hazron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, 
Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Interesting way to begin the Christmas story. And he starts, Matthew that is, starts this story by placing the Jesus story within a much larger story. And essentially in this genealogy, he covers this entire period of history, which is essentially the events that take place in the Old Testament. And so um, let me just kind of make a couple, share a couple thoughts uh, on this really interesting passage of Scripture. The first is that Matthew doesn't start this story with once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He doesn't start this story the way we would start a fairy tale or a myth or a legend. He starts the Jesus story by grounding the Christ event within human history. So he's telling us this isn't just a fairy tale or a myth, and it's not even based on, a tr- on the events of a true story, but this is a true story. Okay? What happens this time of year, especially if you have kids, is that there's all these different stories we tell around Christmas. Stories we read, stories we watch, stories we listen to, Rudolph, Frosty, the Grinch, Elf, all that stuff. And then in the midst of all those stories, oh yeah, there's this Jesus story. And the tendency, without really thinking about it all, is to approach the Jesus story the same way we approach all these other Christmas stories. That it's sort of just this feel-good, family-friendly, inspirational tale that we don't really even stop to think, did this actually happen? Did this event truly occur within human history? Because all those other stories, Rudolph and Frosty and all that, they're fine, right? They're good and they're inspirational and they maybe even give us a moral uh, to, to live by or something. Like the, the moral of the Rudolph story is don't be mean to the weird kid at school because one day he's going to be your boss, right? <laughs> it's actually good advice. Um, but what Matthew does here is make sure that his first readers, as well as us today, wouldn't mistake the Jesus story simply as myth or inspiration. But he grounds this whole narrative within history. And so I would just start by inviting us to consider that that is incredibly good news. That this isn't just an inspirational story that we tell at Christmas time, but this is actually an event that has taken place in human history. And the reason, one of the reasons that that's such good news is that we live in a world that has real problems. So a metaphorical savior will never do. We need a real savior to show up in the real world. And that's the first thing that Matthew's doing here, saying this story actually happened. 
It's a true story. But secondly, the Christmas story is real. First it's true, secondly it's real. So what I mean is that a genealogy in this day was really more than a family tree. It's essentially your resume. It's your pedigree. Your family was the way that you presented yourself to the world. The emphasis wasn't so much on where you went to school or where you worked, but identity was formed by your family tree. And so your pedigree is a really big deal. And so if there was any blemish in your family tree, you would come up with a way of covering it up. And so we know that King Herod um, left all sorts of names out of his own genealogy. Any blemishes in his family history that were embarrassing, he would either just conveniently skip over or he would just flat out lie about them. So King Herod erases the messy and embarrassing parts of his genealogy. Jesus does the exact opposite. This list, this list of names, includes all sorts of flaws and flunkouts. And the writers of the Bible don't cover them up. Okay, so for example, many of you would already know that in this genealogy we're given the names of five women, which is already very rare. In ancient times, you wouldn't include women in your family tree, only the men. And so Jesus breaks that cycle by including these five women, Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then finally Mary. Okay, of these five women he mentions, three of them are Gentiles, meaning they aren't Israelites, meaning they weren't allowed in the temple. They were racial outsiders. And Jesus includes them in his family tree. And not only that, but most of these women, their stories are somewhat scandalous. If you know the story of Tamar, for example, who's essentially tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And Matthew there in verse 3 puts the whole family there to remind us of that whole story. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who harbors enemy spies in Jericho. And then Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's best friends who David had killed so he could have his wife. Okay, So there's this scandalous <clears throat> stories that mark this resume. And so many people, had this been their story in this day, they would have just conveniently left out the women, the racial outsiders, and these scandalous stories. But Matthew, as he tells Jesus' story, he includes all of these messed up things. Soren Kierkegaard tells a parable that might help us understand the narrative that's unfolding in this family tree. And I'll kind of paraphrase it for you. It's a parable of this great rich king who decides to go out one day and survey his domain. And he goes out in his chariot and rides through all the villages and cities that make up his kingdom. And at one point, as he's riding between villages, he's out in the field and he looks out and sees this beautiful peasant woman. She's working in the field on her family's land and from the moment he lays eyes on her, he loves her. 
When he gets back to his palace, he can't stop thinking about her. And all he wants is to be with her, to make her his bride. And then he realizes, I'm the king. All I need to do is issue a royal decree that she is commanded by the king to come to my palace and to become my wife. I'm I'm the king. She's in my kingdom. She'll be required by law to come and live with me. And I'll make her my queen. I'll get her the finest robes and a crown and a ring and a court of women to serve her. And we will have an amazing life together. But one of the king's advisors comes to him and says, Sir, may I suggest that there's a problem with your plan? You can issue a decree, and we can go out and get her and bring her back and throw a huge wedding and feast and crown her the queen, and you will be together. But there's something you'll never know. You'll never know if you have her heart. You'll never know if she's truly happy. You'll never know if she really wants you. And the king says, you're right. That's not what I want. But he desperately wants her as his queen and to share his kingdom with her. And so he comes up with another plan. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll just go down there. I'll show up at her house. And I'll tell her that I'm the king and I want you to be my queen. And she'll hop in my chariot and we'll ride off into the sunset. And his advisor says, ah, but your majesty, that's no good either. See, when you travel through the villages and towns, there's this whole band of trumpeters that go out ahead of of you, letting everyone know that the king is on his way. And there's this whole processional of horses and chariots and and the streets shake and the dust stirs up and everyone will be watching you. And then a herald will go ahead of you and announce your arrival. And you just want to casually walk up to her front door and propose? She'll be caught up in the moment. She'll be overcome with fear and reverence and awe. She won't even be able to look at you. She'll come with you, but it still won't be because she loves you. Do you want her to fall in love with you because of the crown you wear? Or do you want her to love you for who you are? And the king says, you're right again. That's not what I want. And then as the king lays in bed that night, he realizes he only has one option. There's only one way he can be with her and know for sure that she wants to be with him. He has to take off his robes, take off his crown, and put on the clothes of a country peasant and quietly leave the palace without any entourage or trumpets or chariots. He has to go down to her village and live there as her equal. And then and only then, if he's able to woo her to himself and win her heart, he'll know that she loves him, that she wants him, and that she's really happy. So Kierkegaard closes this story in the essay by saying this, I'll read you this paragraph. Since we have now found that the union could not be brought about by an elevation, 
it must be attempted by a descent. Ultimately, the king and the maiden can come neither to a union nor an understanding of one another unless the king himself forgets his kingliness and becomes a lowly peasant like the maiden. It is only in this way that a true and authentic love can be forged between the king and maiden. And the king mustn't just appear as a peasant or live as one for a certain period of time, but he must truly become a peasant in the most real sense possible. And it is only in this manner that the king can solve his dilemma. For love is triumphant. Listen to this. Love is triumphant when it makes that which was unequal equal in love. That's the Christmas story. That's the story that's told in this genealogy of a great God who longs to find a bride for his son and to bring a people into his family to share his life and his blessing with, to share in his kingdom. And so moved by love, Jesus lowers himself. He empties himself. He humbles himself. He gives up the crown and the robe and the throne and the scepter. And he descends into our world to become one of us, to live among us. So what Kierkegaard is saying here is that God's love is demonstrated not by him bringing others up to his level, but by lowering himself to ours. When we talk about God's love, that's what we're talking about. A God who has come to us and given himself to us. And so what would it look like for us to live into that story this week at Christmas? What would it look like for that kind of love to shape the way we sit with God and experience his presence and the way we sit with others? So we'll start with family. How many of you this week will be spending time with family members that you don't see on a normal basis? Yeah, most of us will be seeing people that we don't usually see. I won't have you raise your hands. How many of you, that produces some anxiety in? <laughs> I know for lots of us, we come in to those family gatherings with some nerves, with some walls up, with some defenses up. Because even though we, we love our families... Um, it can be a really difficult thing. So some of you have incredible families. Everybody gets along and it's amazing. And for others of you, if this truly is the most wonderful time of the year, then you're screwed because <laughs> it's pretty rough, right? I get that. Um, it's easy to go into these family gatherings 
like I said, with your defenses up or your walls up, meaning I know that that family member is going to do that thing. I'm just waiting for my stupid drunken uncle to say that or for my manipulative mom to do that. And you kind of go in preparing yourself with this anxiety that as soon as they do that, it's done. Christmas is ruined. (laughs) And you go in watching, and your whole goal is that I don't want that family member to say that thing or to do that thing. So I want to just try to be as practical and applicable as we can this morning as you head out this week to spend time with family. Can I suggest to you that a better goal than getting through Christmas without having your uncle or grandma or niece or nephew or dad or mom offend you, a better goal would be what if on their way home from time spent with you, they find themselves wondering, what happened to you? What if my family left time with me going, man, I've never seen Pete so patient or so generous or so kind. I've never seen him so helpful and actually like serving if there's a diaper that needs to be changed or dishes that need to be done. What if that was our goal, that your family members would leave away, leave wondering what happened in you? Instead of our goal being, I hope they don't offend me. It's going to require you to take some shots for the team. Of course, I'm not talking about legitimate abuse or things like that, right? <laughs> Saying it's, it's going to require you to lower yourself. And instead of expecting all your relatives to live up to your standards, that you would lower yourself to live among them and to love them as God has loved us in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to encourage you not to just agree with that, but to actually try it. And this week, to enter in to your family celebrations um, with this attitude, the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and loves us. And here's what's so encouraging and empowering about this story. If you think your family's messed up, look at Jesus's. Right? If you think your family is this unlikely or even impossible place for God to show up, look at Jesus' story. It's way more messed up than yours. I guarantee it. And so if it's possible that he can show up in this family, it's, it's possible he can show up in yours. For some of you, that would be a Christmas miracle. So we'll pray for that. Secondly, as we seek to celebrate God's love at Christmas, we would start with our family and then we would move outward. And we would begin to look at the people around us, in our neighborhood, in our city, and across the world. And so if we could learn another thing from this genealogy, it's this. Don't get caught up in the world's pattern of skipping over the seemingly insignificant people around you. The trend of the day, as well as ours, would be to ignore, to walk past, 
to look the other way when it comes to the seemingly insignificant, forgettable, ignorable people in the world. But here Matthew takes men and women, Israelites and foreigners, kings and prostitutes, In this story, we see Jesus saying, I love you all. I've come for all of you. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be floored by the idea that we will never look into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. No matter who it is, in our family, in our city, or across the world, when Jesus shows up in the world, it is good news. Especially to the poor. And we're now living in a culture where Christmas is not good news to the poor, is it? It's the news that we're all going to be poor after Christmas. But it produces this anxiety and this fear, this sense of dissonance that I can't truly celebrate this season because I don't have enough money. And it's, you see how backwards that is? And so the question for us is, how could we then celebrate Christ's arrival in a world in a way that is good news to all people everywhere, especially those who need love the most? And who are the people that are easy to ignore? Those who are abandoned. Those who are weak and lonely and suffering. How can we, as Kierkegaard says, make that which is unequal, equal in love? Well, throughout this whole Advent conspiracy journey we've been on, we've been slowly moving towards Christmas Eve in the day that we will show up as a church family with our relatives and neighbors and coworkers in this room to celebrate the story of Jesus. And there's several things that are different about the service this year, the first being that it's here at Bend High. But one of the bigger shifts is that we want this gathering on Christmas Eve not just to be an entertaining show, but to actually, in and of itself, be an expression that reflects God's love into the world. And so for a couple months now, on your radar has been this love offering that we'll be taking on Christmas Eve. A chance to come together and any of the money that we were able to save by giving relationally or spending less on presents people don't need, but instead the vision and dream is to pool that money together on one night and then to take 100% of that offering and to give it away to those who need it the most. To take that which is unequal and to make it equal in love. And so we've chosen two partners, two places where we want to distribute this Christmas offering. 
And the first is here in Bend, and it's a brand new shelter connected to the shepherd's house that's going to serve women and children who are in need here in our city. It's a brand new initiative, and it's exactly the kind of thing that we think partnering with will reflect this story. Because as we end in verse 16, you have this unmarried woman and her child who are in need of a place to stay. And we come along with this new shelter and say we want to empower flourishing and love and life. And then secondly, we're partnering with the Sold Project, which is good friends of ours in Thailand who are working to eliminate the evil and tragedy of sex trafficking by focusing on prevention. So thankfully, there's many organizations that are pulling women and children out of traffic. And Rachel and her team at the Sold Project are focusing on preventing those girls from ever going there in the first place through education and through teaching and hospitality and environment. And so our goal, and we kind of just pulled a number out of thin air, would be what if we, as Antioch, could give $10,000 to each of those organizations this Christmas? $20,000 in one night, 100% which would be, of which would be given away as a celebration that God has given himself to us and as a reflection of that kind of love to the city. I came up with 20000 going, sounds good. Here's the thing. We could give a hundred grand that night if we wanted to. We could. And it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a bad thing. And so my encouragement is that as you and your family prepare to, to join us on Christmas Eve, that you would be praying and talking and thinking amongst yourselves about what God would enable you to give. So if you just show up and we pass the bucket and you're trying to come up with a figure on the spot, you're not going to know what to do. You've got, you've got four or five days now. If you haven't already, in your family, even on the drive home today, start thinking and talking and praying about what would God allow us to give. Now here's the reality. Some of us, we wish we could give a whole bunch of money, but we can't. And so we're only going to be able to give very little. That's okay. If you can only give a little bit, then give a little. Some of us can give a whole bunch of money. And if you can, I'd like to encourage you to do so. And together, that night, it won't be about who gave a little and who gave a lot. It will be about us as a community getting to reflect God's great love in the world and getting to celebrate that we didn't waste a bunch of money buying people things they don't need, but instead we used whatever God has blessed us with to help meet legitimate needs of people both in our city and around the world. 
And so we won't talk a whole bunch about this on Christmas Eve. That's why we're spending some time on it tonight. We know that your friends and family members and coworkers may not understand the whole journey we've been on. And so we're going to be really sensitive to that. We will explain the need and give everybody an opportunity to give. But for us, as the Antioch community, this is our chance to be generous and to celebrate the scandalous, equalizing love of Christ. Sound good? Okay. So please do think and pray, consider together what God would enable you to give, whether that's a lot or whether that's a little. And above all, we remember that this equalizing, humble love that marked Christ's life is the same love that marked his death. And the truthfulness, the historicity of this story, it's not just good news that the Christmas story is true, but also that the Good Friday and Easter stories are true as well. And we're so thankful that we don't just have a metaphorical God who metaphorically loves us, but we have a real God who has broken into human history And the real problems in your life and the real problems in the world today. He is the only hope. And he's here. He's among us. He's with us. And his kingdom is coming. And so we stand as followers of Jesus in this place of hopefully anticipating Christ's arrival in the world when one day he will make all things new, where all severed relationships in the world will be reconciled and made right, where we even will become the people we are created and called to be. We look forward to that day. We anticipate that day. But for now, we're people in waiting, seeking that kingdom, looking for Jesus, and doing whatever we can to participate in his world-changing, history-making love. Father, we're so thankful for the invitation that we have, not just to be the recipients of your love, but to participate in it. And I'm thankful for this community, this church, that you have loved us, given yourself to us, come down to our level and dwelt among us. So I pray first that we would receive you again, that we would experience your nearness and your presence and your joy and your peace in a way that only you can be for any of us. And secondly, that that love would change us. And that we would find ourselves loving one another and loving those who need love the most. So Spirit, please inspire gracious, generous hearts among us this week. We pray for the offering on Christmas Eve that it would be sweet-smelling to you a glorious incense 
of worship and of joy. And whatever it is that we're able to give that night, we pray that you would use it to advance your kingdom in this world, to heal, to rescue, to love for your glory. In Jesus' name.